this is Ingrid, and I want to welcome you to a very special episode of Reckoning. This is the first episode in which I attempt to weave together the stories of seven different people in one episode. So instead of the usual one interview with one person and one story, this episode is going to be a little bit different. So a little bit of context is that I'm in a master's in social work program at Portland State, and one of my classes is on end-of-life and palliative care, which obviously is an interest of mine. And it has really just been a joy to be in a class full of people that are interested in this topic. And so for an assignment, instead of writing a paper, I opted to record a podcast episode. And so I have seven classmates that agreed to participate in the project with me, which is really exciting. I have seven stories. We're going to weave them into one episode. And then I'm going to share each of those stories as a separate episode later. And the reason I'm doing this this way is because, A, I think it'll be fun and interesting to hear seven different stories all together, the comparing and the contrasting of those different stories in one space. But I also didn't record it as just one group interview because I really wanted to make space for each person to share their story the way they wanted to. And so in a typical fashion for myself, I've made it a little complicated, but I'm really excited about this episode. And, and I think the result is beautiful. Now, it may not be the most smooth audio editing you've ever heard in your life, and I am not a professional, so I appreciate you being willing to go on this ride with me. So what I'm going to do is start off by just letting everybody introduce themselves. And as a reminder, everyone recorded their conversations separately with me. So this is the first time all their voices are coming together into one space. The question I asked everyone is their name and where they are. And we all came together in this class. Um, but essentially, we are seven strangers. I mean, I don't know if some of them know each other, but I don't really know anyone in the class too well, aside from maybe having a few other classes together with folks. So um, it is a fun thought experiment of if you were to take seven, or, you know, eight, including myself, random people and put them into a room and talk about their experiences with death, this is the result of that. Okay, so here's everyone introducing themselves and telling us where they are. I'm Rosie Buford, and I live in Independence. Um, I'm originally from Montana, but I've called Oregon home now for 13 years. My name is Hema Rivera, and I don't know what, what you mean by where I am. <laughs> I am at home. <laughs> uh, my name is Kristen Lucas, and I live over in uh, Bend, Oregon. Uh, my name is Jeff Johnson. And I'm in Portland, Oregon. Yes, I'm Peggy Rost, and I'm currently in Selwood, which is in Portland, Oregon. I'm Celeste Jenish, and I am a PSU student. Well, my name's Jeanette, and I'm here in my home. I'm actually in the room where my dad passed. This was mm -hmm. his bedroom for a short time. Okay. So here we are. We've got Rosie, Hema, Kristen, Jeff, Peggy, 
Celeste and Jeanette. And right off the bat, um, you know, a few things that I'm noticing are that, you know, I love Hema's insight into like, I don't know what you mean as to where I'm at, because um, the other context, right, is that all of these recordings were done on Zoom um, or Skype. And so we live in this COVID-19 pandemic quarantine world in which for a lot of us, our jobs and our classes and our social lives all happen in Zoom in this weird virtual space. And as Jeanette shared, she's in the room that her dad died in, which is, again, adds an extra texture and context to talking with everyone. Um, We're not in a neutral space. We're not in the classroom. We're in each other's living rooms and homes, even though we're not physically there. So I think that adds another layer of vulnerability and personality. So as this episode moves forward, like each person won't necessarily be referring to their names. And so if you kind of get lost track of whose story is who, I'll write some notes in conjunction with this episode so folks can keep track. But I would also say to some degree, just listening to the stories, I think as as people keep talking, you'll get a sense for whose story is who. So the next question and the next portion I wanted to share is just a background of everybody's story. Who are they here to talk about? What is their experience with death and dying? And as you'll see, um, there are some interesting similarities. A few of us have lost our dads specifically and our parents. And there are also some real differences. A couple of stories have to do with thinking about and wrestling with the possibility of one's own death, not just the death of others. And we hear about deaths and losses across the human lifespan, from children still in the womb to older adults who had long lives. And each of them brings their own flavor of loss and grief. So without going too much more into detail, I'm going to let everybody speak for themselves. Maybe it'll feel a little bit like if we were all sitting in a circle and each person was taking turns sharing their story. We found out that we were finally pregnant and um, we were pregnant with twins at seven and a half months. The day after my baby shower, we went into um, we went back to the specialist and this was our checkup. And it was, you know, scary because it was like, this is the moment to see if Nora, you know, is is still growing, is still doing well. I remember watching the tech looking at, you know, ultrasounds and what she's seeing, what she's measuring. Finally, she just abruptly stopped and said, I found no heartbeat for Nora and then Mm. exited the room. There was all of these things happening at once, like Mm. holding now this concept of I have two babies and one is going to be, you know, coming into this world alive and one is going to not. Mm. The timing was that this happened the day after my baby shower. So I had duplicates of everything and I had to go back through and return all the duplicates. And, you know, I mean, like big things like I had two strollers and two car seats and, you know, two high chairs, you know, and and that was part of the grieving process. And I actually embraced that as part of like a healing process, Mm. a part of like saying goodbye. And I, I, 
for myself made it very intentional in Mm -hmm. my spirit to say like, this is something tangible Mm -hmm. that I'm going to do. I mean, it was still very painful, Mm -hmm. but I think because of how much avoidance happened, it it at least was something that Mm -hmm. felt like I could do because Mm -hmm. we didn't have a service. got a stroke and a handful of years later she got another stroke so by the time I met my grandma when I was maybe in second grade she had lost about a quarter of her brain's function Mm -hmm. her care got to be too difficult for my uncle and aunt so Uh, a decision was made for her to move to Washington where, you know, pretty close to five of my mom's other siblings. So, so there would be stronger support. And so my family kind of established that my grandma would live with one of my aunts and then things happened so quickly. My memory of it is just a bunch of like blurred images because it was so, it felt like it was so fast. I can't even remember what initially happened to get my grandma into the hospital. All I know is something with her kidneys started Mm. to fail. And as soon as she was in the hospital, all of her kids showed up. People were with by her side in the hospital all the time. And then I'm, I'm sure it had been something like hospice was initiated. So after she was in, her, after her stay ended, I remember my aunt's house, my grandma's bedroom at that house suddenly had like the hospital bed in there. Um, I just have an image of... They had placed her in um, a long black bag of sorts with a long zipper. Mm. And I was in the living room and I just remember seeing them wheeling her out of the house. And then, and that was it. I think that the hardest part of all that was seeing all the adults lose their mom. And this was when I was a sophomore in high school, so maybe I was 16 or something. I just remember being so scared that all the adults were so devastated and, mm. you know, sad and crying. Watching, seeing your grown-ups cry is really scary. started back in spring of 2016 um, I started having some kind of odd symptoms like feeling a little dizzy or just weird sight stuff going on so I, I went in to do like a routine check it all happened so rapidly but in a nutshell um, I the first diagnosis was I was diagnosed with medullary thyroid cancer Um, it just felt like my world was crashing down. Um, I ended up by the end of the summer, I was in surgery. I had a eight and a half hour surgery, um, but successful. They, they thought they got it all at that point. 
in the process of going through all this, I was still continuing to have some headaches and still not feeling good. So my doctor actually went ahead and ordered more tests like an MRI. And I actually um, was diagnosed with um, a diffuse astrocytoma, which the type of brain tumor. And are the, were those unrelated diagnoses? Like the one didn't cause the other, they were just completely distinct. That's what they think. That's what they think. I question that myself just at the limits of the medical profession and what they Mm. know. But yeah, that's what they told me that they, the one in my head had been sitting there for probably years. Being in the hospital for a week was like this, this time where I just couldn't get out of my little environment there, you know, mm. I had to really think about my life and like, wow, where am I going with this thing? You know, where mm. am I, you know, am I going to make it through, you know, what, what is my sense of life going to look like when I get out of here? And like, is it even going to be the same at all? Mm. Um, so those were like thoughts. Um, and I, I did have kind of a magic medical emergency the first night after my surgery at, um, I, my calcium levels bottomed out and I had just this, I thought I was having like a stroke. Mm. So, um, they, they came in and like helped me, but that night I think is where I shifted the most. Cause I went, wow, this is just really more serious than I even thought in my mm. mind. Um, and I just started, started thinking about how fragile life can be, mm. how I can go from one stage of being totally healthy, living my life as I know it. And then boom, you know, into this other I don't know, like just reality of what my life is. What is my interest in this subject and where does it come from? And I I definitely do have, you know, personal experience um, of losing loved ones and, and those being really profound experiences in my life. But I, I think for me, like there is a deep, like intellectual interest in this subject. And before, before pursuing mental health, um, you know, I studied theology for a really long time. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think for me, there's this really deep fascination with mystery and that being kind of the common thread that unites like my interest in end of life care. It's, it's where these mm-hmm. existential questions naturally come up and, you know, those, those existential questions come up with the highest frequency when someone is facing the end of their life. Um, you know, what is this all about? What does it mean to be human? What happens after death? And, you know, that can foster a conversation about spirituality. It can also foster a lot of other conversations um, about legacy, about what does it mean to live well? And to me, that is really like, that's what draws me to this work. I have a deep attraction to, to mystery. And I I think, yeah, I I think I've really felt my vocational path, like become clear just Mm. recently, you know, within the last year in this like form of end of life care, because it facilitates conversations that I'm deeply interested in um, both personally Mm -hmm. and like, and academically and professionally. You know, one of my supervisors in the beginning of the year said, you know, my, my hope for you over the course of this year is that you really learn to love the work and mm. fall in love with it. And, um, and I really found that that's been the case. You know, I think, mm. I think for all of us in 
in the school of social work, it's trying to find like our niche or our particular speed that we're, that we feel drawn to when it comes to mental health care. And I think for me, it's, I've really found that in end of life care in a way that Mm -hmm. it feels really resonant and that I feel so like encouraged, so energized by, um, Mm -hmm. and yeah, it's an exciting time. You know, I, I think, and it's also, it's so funny to try to explain that to folks who are outside of that world, just because it sounds Mm -hmm. for a lot of people, like the last thing that they would ever be excited to go do. Mm -hmm. Um, but to me, yeah, I don't know. It has so much resonance with so many other parts of my life. And yeah, I, I just, I find the work really gratifying. So I lost my um, dad when I was five. I was almost six. He died on New Year's uh, 1999. So, you know, something having that experience so young, I think for me, means that I've kind of always had, like the, the grieving process is different, I guess. And it's like mm-hmm. kind of an ongoing thing that I feel like I'm still doing even now. Like mm-hmm. it changes, like, you know, it, it never fully goes away. It wasn't until I think I got into my 20s and having some of my own medical complications that are similar to what my dad had and kind of Mm. made me think more about what, you know, what that experience would have been for him. So it's, um, it's called HHT and it's a super rare, it's a blood disorder. So Mm. our, uh, I guess our blood vessel, our blood vessels don't always form properly and Mm. it's. I guess I think I said it's hereditary. So it's a 50-50 chance that you'll pass it down to your children. Our families had it, but we never knew until actually my dad had a pretty bad seizure when he was 16. Mm. Um, and he went in to up at OHSU and had an MRI done. Um, and they found a really large AVM, which is um, up in his brain. So it's like um, just a large like tangle of blood vessels, basically. I, I didn't know um, when he passed, I, I was, you know, I was five and I didn't know yet. And I hadn't been tested yet for that, but it was, I think a f- only a few years after, um, I think I was like nine or 10 mm-hmm. that I had the testing done and found out that I had it as well. So, so not everyone with HHT gets brain AVMs, but he, he had them obviously. And I actually have um, them as well. Mm-hmm. And technology has advanced a lot. So mm-hmm. one, so it's not as high of a risk now for someone mm-hmm. with my condition as it would have been, as it was for him. And, and I, I left this out too, but my, my grandpa died two years after my dad found out about his HHT diagnosis. So when mm-hmm. he was 18 um, from HHT as well. So, mm-hmm. so I've always kind of had this like well, and, and it was same. He had, he had a brain AVM that, that bled, um, mm-hmm. that hemorrhaged and, and he passed shortly mm-hmm. after. Um, so it does, it, the reality is I do have like, they're kind of AVMs can be referred to as these like ticking time bombs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, you know, I, I have them and, um, mm-hmm. think about that for sure. Mm-hmm. But 
there is also the reality that I got tested at a young age. So then I had my first uh, radio surgery when I was 12 for an AVM that they found. A couple years ago, I had found out that I had an unruptured aneurysm in my brain. Mm. So that one definitely is also is like much higher, even higher risk than just having an AVM. So that was a really scary experience too. And in particular, like just feeling, you know, the weight of that medical condition, I guess. My understanding is that you would like to talk about your parents. It sounds like maybe they both lived with you and you were with them both when they died. So yes, yeah, they curious. lived very close, just a few blocks down the street. So mm-hmm. we had been in each other's homes for years. And as they got older, we just drive them to our house. We were just back and forth. We became the family unit, the six mm-hmm. of us. And by the six of us, I mean both of them, my mom and dad, and my husband and our two children. Mm-hmm. So my children got to see the death and dying process as mm-hmm. well. Um, not as much as my mom, because she died in the hospital, but with my dad, because he had moved in with us part-time and they helped mm. some with his care. And we all knew that he could live. We had all decided he would live here with us for as long as we could care for him. There were support groups at a Milwaukee center where my dad and parents would go from time to time. But I couldn't get away because I had kids. Mm. I would have mm-hmm. liked to have gone. So there were things, but I often had to be home for the kids or maybe there was an appointment I had to take them to Mm -hmm. Oh, practice for my, I just was never able to go. And I wanted Mm -hmm. to, we did get a volunteer who could help three hours a week through a Clackamas, a grant to Clackamas County for caregiving program. Meaning Mm -hmm. if you're at home taking care of someone in this case, elderly person, they had a volunteer program. So I think there were a couple that helped out, but that's three hours, but it was another set of eyes. My mom didn't like meals and on wheels, but my dad Mm -hmm. didn't mind in it. I didn't care so much because I did the cooking and the meal prep for him, but it was also another set of eyes and it gave him a little bit of independence. <clears throat> little things like that helped a little, but no, I wouldn't say I got much mm. of a break. My husband mm. helped a lot in that, mm-hmm. whatever they needed at their house, but we were mm-hmm. kind of all really attached to the hip. Mm. If mm. there was an event at the school, we all went, but you know, this is also another cultural thing too. I think mm. a lot of chauffeuring around. It was sometimes like having four kids, you know, they're a point for individual people who need oversight and care. Yeah, so um, in March 2018, my dad died. Mm. Um, he and I were really close. Um, I was his only child. So my dad and I had a pretty special relationship my entire life. And... I was about 26 around that time. And um, shortly after the divorce, he had a massive stroke. So he had no one caring for him. He was living in his house in Connecticut. And I had just moved to Vermont. He had just helped me move to Vermont like a week and a half before. And then, you know, shortly after was in the ICU after having a big stroke. 
but we got him home and um, he had financial resources, which was helpful. Um, so we were able to hire private caregivers. There was a lot of drama involved in that process. Those were really hard years. He was, um, he had a couple of falls. He had a lot of trouble swallowing. Um, so he would constantly get pneumonia and he went into the hospital for one of the trips. This was probably three years after the stroke. And I called the, the care team at the hospital and I said, look, he can't really go back to his house. His caregivers can't manage him anymore. This has been a you know, conversation I've been having with the caregivers leading up to this event. Um, he really needs to be in a facility and I need help facilitating that conversation. And the staff in the hospital agreed and they discharged him to a nursing home still in Connecticut. They found that he had stage four cancer all through his spine and hips. Mm. And we decided that he would go to a a hospice facility. I really didn't want him dying in the hospital. So he went to this really nice hospice facility uh, run by the VNA, Visiting Nurses Association there. And before we were going, that's when we had some really emotional conversations that will be hard for me to describe. He said he knew there was something all along and Mm. um, that he'd never forget everything I did for him. And I had a chance to say too, um, I would never forget everything he did for me. And then we went to a hospice and Um, We were told he probably had a few months. So I was able to kind of write him like a a journal entry, kind of listing all those things I would never forget about him uh, and and was able to read it to him, which I'm so glad he did because he ended up dying um, a week after getting to hospice. A deep breath. That's a lot to hold. We just heard a lot of different stories, a huge range of feelings, experiences, thoughts, ideas. That's what keeps me coming back to these conversations is there is so much richness and depth and texture and color to the range of ways that we can talk and feel and think about death and dying. I think it's demonstrated really beautifully by the stories that we just heard. As usual, I feel humbled and honored and in awe of being able to share these very authentic and very raw conversations with people. I think this is the juicy stuff, right? This is what this is what life is about. It's seeing each other, hearing each other, and being real about our experiences as we walk through life and death together. So just, yeah, really appreciative of everyone who was willing to share a story. So moving on from now having the details of each person's story, I wanted to highlight for each person what I felt like was a real gem of wisdom. And of course, every conversation had multiple moments that felt powerful and important and wise. But for the sake of time, I just picked one from each story. I think it's a really nice collection of insights. It goes back to the idea that everybody has something to teach. Everybody has a wisdom to share. 
And then I remember just thinking, okay, now I need to be here for my mom. Mm. Wow. (laughs) It was so, it feels like it was so long ago and I'm still Mm. kind of emotional. Yeah. I didn't expect that. Um, Mm. Can I ask what you're feeling when you say you realized you had to to help take care of your mom? What, What are you feeling in that moment when you say that? Like, what are you feeling right now? I don't know. I, I don't even know how to mm-hmm. pinpoint it. It's probably a mix of like gratitude that my mom was always there for me and mm-hmm. just like some kind of like strength emotion to like protect myself a little bit so that, mm-hmm. um, so that I can be there for her. And, and, you know, like what a bummer to lose your mom. And I can't even imagine losing my mom. Mm-hmm. I guess I feel a little bit like, what would it feel like for me to lose my mom? And yeah, it's, it's, it's devastating. So I can, I can try to imagine what that would be like. And it's, yeah, just so hard to, to know that your parent is going through so much pain is mm. awful. Mm. I, I don't know. I just want to like also protect her. Like Mm. she took care of me for my whole Mm. life. And there's one specific memory after my grandma died. And I can't remember if this was after the service or where it fits, but I was in my room and my mom came in. Yeah, there was just this moment where she came into my room and she, I can't even say it. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. She had come in and she just looked at me and said, she said something like, I'm an orphan now and Mm. started to cry Mm. and Mm. yeah I just hugged her and she just cried in my room for a little Mm. while I guess I didn't think about being an adult orphan Mm -hmm. and I was also I think I was also confused because I knew her dad was still alive but I also knew that her mom was the one that was her parent. Mm. And so it, it was just struck me that my mom was an orphan because she lost her one parent mm. that she had. I'm curious if you wanted to share more about, you know, you'd mentioned firing your entire medical team, what that process was like and. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it started, I think it was actually for my, uh, the brain tumor that I had had because they mm-hmm. weren't sure what type it was. And 
my doctor had said, well, I think we need to go ahead and look at doing some radiation for this. And I just remember being in the room um, and just, it, it was so clear, you know, I just said, no, I'm not interested in doing that at this point. I don't believe that that's what it is myself. I don't want to turn into a human cucumber. Mm. This is ridiculous. And I mean, my doctor blew a gasket, like literally like, you know, well, if you don't do this, I'm going to give you like five years and that's all you're probably going to get out of this. And Mm. I just, it just shifted me profoundly to where Mm. I went, okay, I'm not buying this. I am going to get a second opinion. And I actually had another doctor um, in, in bed here who um, really agreed with me and just mm-hmm. said, yeah, let's do this. And they did a lot more research. I had to go through like panels of genetic tests and all these things to determine that it was a lesser grade of tumor. And just, I grew so much through the process of mm-hmm. my life counts and my voice counts. So mm-hmm. when I look at the vulnerable populations that I'm working with, who don't necessarily have a voice, like, you know, these elderly people with dementia or whatever it might be, they can't call out for help necessarily. Mm-hmm. What's that going to look like in their reality of their life? So, um, and I, I do actually circling back to that day where I was in the doctor's office, there was an elderly man in a wheelchair who they were going to give, they were taking blood or say, he melted down in the waiting room, literally mm-hmm. right there, right then, almost right in front of me. And that is, I think the day where I shifted, I went, okay, I've got to do something. I can't, mm-hmm. I've got to help people. This is mm-hmm. just, yeah, that was it. Yeah. The day. Yeah. I think just my awakening of knowing I'm not like alone in this, like there's, there's, there's help. There's so many more people out there um, that need help as well. It was surprising that that came out at that point because I would never have normally been like that. I would have been like, oh, you know, my physicians, they know best and Mm -hmm. I'm not going to second guess it. But I just felt this knowing of what was important to me. And I mean, that that's where I look at like people going through situations later in their life um, Mm -hmm. and trying to like elderly people who are having different medical crises, you know, what's that going to look like? What are they going to end up in? You know, what, what is their reality going to look like? So Mm -hmm. my connection with um, wanting to help those type of, uh, populations has come into play mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. just by yeah. speaking my own voice and and actually getting this reply from my doctor of what's that going to do for me then that doesn't make me feel very good when you give me five years mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? that's not very encouraging mm-hmm. so yeah mm-hmm. having to reach into the depths of my own being mm. really self-examine and and what's important to me um, so in, in hindsight, I, it was the best thing I ever did. I mean, it was <laughs> yeah. like, it just, yeah, I, I don't even have words. It was tremendous. I mean, how cool is it that we as human beings can really have tangible experiences of, of, like bodily transcendence. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it it was Perks of Being a Wallflower, that book that talked about these moments where we feel infinite. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. really like captures it, I think. This, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it be 
uh, a moment in nature or going to a concert and, you know, like hearing a song mm-hmm. that like makes mm-hmm. you feel like in it or yeah, yeah, sharing a beautiful meal with people and, and like the time just passes. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that to me is, is what it's all about. I mean, I, I think, mm-hmm. you know, Alan Watts describes the purpose of spirituality should be to put us in a place to experience wonder as often as possible. Mm-hmm. And that, that just feels like an incredible goal to have. And mm-hmm. those moments all capture that, you know, they're moments mm-hmm. of wonder. Um, mm-hmm. And I know, you know, I don't want to sound like a broken record uh, with kind of the exciting developments with end of life care and, and psilocybin, but this is such an exciting time to be in mental health as it relates to end of life care. And that patients have this capacity, you know, in, in Oregon now that they can have that experiential transcendence that here mm-hmm. there, there's a substance that exists naturally in the world that can allow someone to transcend mm-hmm. their bodily existence and feel connected to the universe and feel mm-hmm. connected to the natural world and all the people in their lives and can break down these barriers of fear. I mean, that is powerful. I just feel so excited to be stepping into this world of mental health care and of end of life care at this really pivotal time when uh, we have this potential new tool that could be transformative. I think there's real freedom in the, in the letting go of protecting that cushion and, you know, that insulation from disaster people as privileged as someone like myself and my identities um, I have been insulated from the lived reality that so many people on this planet have to deal with on a daily basis. And, and I think when, when I can learn to let go of um, this false notion that, that life is supposed to be enjoyable and safe and easy all the time. Mm -hmm. And I can face, I mean, Pima Chodron like has this beautiful Mm -hmm. definition of like, having a committed relationship to reality, you know, um, that to me is like really been resonant of like, I just, I don't want to hold on to this um, naive and self-protectionist view Mm -hmm. of my life that Mm -hmm. it needs to be a certain way. And Mm -hmm. when we leave room for the very real possibility that like calamity can happen, I think we we hold on to our own selves and our own lives a little bit looser. And I think when we do that, we live a little bit freer and we live more open to other people's experiences and more open to the possibility of being disrupted. And Mm. I think that makes us more gentle. It makes us more loving. It makes us more open. And all of that is a really beautiful potential byproduct of, of this experience that we've all been learning from. That's how I want to live my life, you know, mm-hmm. and one where my grasp is a little bit looser um, and that my expectations for how my life needs to be in order mm-hmm. to be worth living, um, that that is, that those expectations are dissolved. And I think in that there's, there's real potential for, for living well.
so Sean, the plan was Sean was going to meet me for lunch. We went to a yoga class. Um, we were going to go have lunch later and then go meet up at the hospice facility and hopefully see Mary there too. Um, so Sean and I are in this yoga class and that alone was special because um, one of my favorite teachers, Sophie, was teaching and she knows Sean from 30 years ago. Um, they were both, Sophie was married to a member of the band Fish and Sean's mm-hmm. friend is in Fish. So they knew each other from like another lifetime. Of mm-hmm. before. Um, so it was just special for the three of us to be in the same room. And um, I don't know if you practice yoga, but at the end of it, you go into Shavasana, which mm-hmm. is basically like a, a death. Um mm-hmm and a state of surrender back to our mm-hmm. our word and mm-hmm. um i had this realization during it like oh i can be so happy that i'm sharing this special class with sophie and sean and still be really sad that my dad is dying mm-hmm. in a facility 10 minutes down the road and it um it was just a helpful realization for me about all the different feelings you can have um, mm. at any point in life. And so we finished the class and we go to sit down at um, this restaurant for lunch and I have a few missed calls and I, a couple are from Mary and I call Mary and I just have this awful feeling. And I'm like, Oh my God, did he die? And she said, yes. And I just couldn't believe that that's mm. what happened. And um, she said, he's, she's like, Peggy, it was the most peaceful thing I've ever seen. And mm-hmm. Sean will drive you here. He's still very much in this room. Mm-hmm. Take a deep breath and I will see you soon. So mm-hmm. it was like the longest, <laughs> most surreal drive over to go mm-hmm. see him. And Mary was right. You could still feel him. Um, Sean and Mary gave me some time and I just hugged him and had a few moments with him. And I mean, Mm. at first I was really upset that I wasn't there with him, but Mm. I also, I also realized that um, sometimes people just need their best friend, not their child. So I'm I'm just glad that he was with her Mm. and her comfort. Yeah. Yeah. I looked at the timing and he died while we were in that Shavasana. So it's like, that's amazing. Yeah. And in a way, I think I was able to be closer to him in that way than I had been sitting next to him. So, like, that was kind of one of my, like, like it sounds sad, but, like, one of my you know, main memories of him was just, um, having those seizures, you know, mm. we'd be, um, sitting down at the table and then all of a sudden he'd be out falling out of his chair and, mm. you know, on the floor and my sister and I would be like running to hide. And it's definitely all a blur. I don't even, I can't mm. even remember if I, I know that he had a funeral, but I don't remember if I was there. Mm. I don't remember it at all. And so I also mm. wonder if my brain is kind of 
like doing these weird, just blocking certain things out from that, that time, because sure. it was like, there's this really prominent event mm. that I remember very vividly, like the day of him passing. And then everything mm. else is just kind of like what you were saying earlier about the seizures. Yeah. Like, like, I remember those really strongly mm-hmm. um, because you know, those were such tra- like kind of trauma, I guess, experiences. So it, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's just made everything else hard right. to remember. Yeah. So tell me, tell me about you. So you said you remember the day that he died. What do you want to share about that day? Yeah, it is. It is interesting that I can like, like tell you vividly. Like mm-hmm. it was, um, I think I mentioned, so it was, it was New Year's day. My sister and I had gotten up super early in the morning for some reason, we we were just super excited about it being New Year's. And so we were out sitting on the couch. It was like probably five in the morning. Um, and my mom comes running out of the bedroom crying. And she's she calls 911. Um, and then, yeah, they they show mm-hmm. up. And, and like, I don't, I didn't go into the room at, at that time. Um, but um, the paramedics came. And my sister was the one like pointed them to the bedroom. So, you know, we must have somewhat known kind of what was going on, but again, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's just this weird memory of it, of that Mm. piece. Um, But yeah, then um, they came, he was already, he was pronounced dead scene and it was a seizure and a nosebleed in combination, which even that wasn't really talked about in my family. Like Mm -hmm. I, I knew vaguely that it was a seizure, but it wasn't until another one of like, a conversation I had with my uncle in my twenties about it. And then he ended up sending me my dad's autopsy I have on my phone. So I ended up like, you know, studying that, like, well, like trying to understand it now, but, um, right. but yeah, so that um, at the time, and then we went to my grandma's house after, and my sister and I stayed there. Like I could tell you like mm-hmm. what we ate for breakfast <laughs> at my grandma's that morning, like all of that in detail mm-hmm. um, of that, that experience, just like <laughs> what an ironic day. Mm-hmm. to die you know right. like starting fresh that's mm-hmm. and what I found is that there's a lot of busy work you know mm-hmm. deaf there's a lot of paperwork and administrative work involved when someone dies for the most part and that keeps you busy and then the following year it seems like when you could really feel the sense of them gone because everything's gone the house is sold someone else living in there you know Mm -hmm. still get mail in both their names but it's Mm -hmm. nothing that is relevant someone else is you know given the task to represent and execute you know, what Mm -hmm. the parents wanted. I, you know, how in class we talk about having the pulse and the advanced Mm -hmm. medical directive. And, you know, I took all the paperwork with me because I thought this might be it, the stroke, you know. And despite having everything, I couldn't believe how the ER doctor or the medical personnel were still pushing for treatment. Mm. We can do this, we can do that. You know, it's like, no, he see here, they don't, they didn't want anything, get, you know, they didn't want feeding tubes. They didn't want ever. He's going to be, he can't swallow anymore. Mm-hmm. Life. I, I felt like I had to explain, but I shouldn't have had to. <clears throat> when you're selling their home, if they still have one or furniture, what have you, 
to have to part with things they loved that myself or other relatives or friends aren't keeping things Mm -hmm. they worked for to pay maybe in payments that they took pride in that no one wants that was quite an experience too of getting rid of a person not a person but their what used to be part of what they identified with Um, photos photos of their friends Mm -hmm. that I don't know or remember you just can't keep everything I guess Mm -hmm. I could you know I could store something somewhere and and so you have to dispose of some things that you grew up with yourself I grew up with those things too Mm -hmm. and have attacked some memories with it too dishes or what have you you're not just dealing with the emotion and the grief but right kind of the business aspect of it as well I still despite when I talk about how much work it was simultaneously I miss them very much mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and would like to see them again mm-hmm. even though I know how difficult it was We had decided we're not going to, we're not going to see Nora Mm -hmm. and we're just going to focus on Sloan. We're just going to accept Sloan um, and Sloan's birthday and we want it to be happy. We don't want to focus on, on these sad things. And I kind of regret that. Actually, I regret it a lot. I think, Mm -hmm. I don't know what, what it would have done for me, but yeah, I, I do regret it. But the hospital really, I think, took really specific steps to to make this delivery um, compassionate mm. and mindful. And my God, I'm glad someone did. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, it just um, nobody was pausing around me and I wasn't pausing mm. to say like, this is a lot is <laughs> mm-hmm. like, can we just take a moment for that? And the nurses, um, both of the nurses who, who they called in came and um, they were very much in that, like, let's, mm. let's sit in this moment and just, mm. you know, like, let's just um, prepare our hearts, you mm. know, and like, let's talk about this like family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we ex- they asked us that same question of like so you know do you do you want to spend time with Nora um, before you know she's taken to autopsy mm-hmm. and we told her you know we told our nurses no and so then you know delivery happened. it was very whirlwind Sloan was very healthy everything was great um, and then it was the next day and my husband was gone and one of the nurses actually both of them came back and you know I was there by myself Sloan was sleeping and they were like as women and as moms we we know like we know what you're going through and what you know needs you're probably not having met mm. and we know that like the decision that you had to make yesterday was mm. unthinkable and difficult and so they were just like we um one we want you to know that Nora was perfect and that we held her and hugged her tight 
and and cared for her and honored her mm-hmm. in a way that we know you you would have wanted to mm-hmm. and um they also did a card for her like with her footprints mm-hmm. and gave that to me it was kind of funny i had ma- i was on Pinterest, like while I was pregnant and I made a bunch of little baby booties from Mm. a Pinterest uh, pattern. And the very first Pinterest pattern I had done was they were way too tiny. They were like teeny tiny. (laughs) And I saved them though, because I'm like, they're just so dang cute. But (laughs) obviously they won't fit anybody. Like no baby has these tiny feet. And you know, then I made normal size ones. And Mm. it just so happened that when I looked at those footprint cards, I was like, oh my God. Wow. These little baby booties that were way too tiny actually are the same size as the feet on that card. Well, what a gift, I think, to glean these insights from our storytellers. Again, I just want to thank them so much for the vulnerability and the courage it takes to share their story. I think it's such a perfect demonstration of how beauty and wisdom and love are born out of tragedy and loss and grief. Such a strange paradox, isn't it, that death is both theft and gift at the same time. So that that leads me to the last little question that I wanted to bring into the space, which is, why do we keep showing up to talk about and feel and think about our experiences with death and dying? Why don't we just let them fade into the background? Stop talking about it. Let it go. Okay, so without further ado, the last word going to Rosie, Hema, Kristen, Jeff, Peggy, Celeste, and Jeanette. I love these conversations and in all honesty, I find catharsis for myself in these kinds of conversations because I don't get to have them very often and for me it's it's a a bit of honoring you know the you know my own loss I got I got to speak my voice too because Mm. in the past I've been one to be quieter and hold back in the background so Mm. I think there's actually I mean I just in my point of view I believe that things do happen for a reason so I believe that I was given this experience in this life to speak my voice and be Mm. able to share uh, my journey with others that might not feel like they have the voice to mm. really speak out. Mm. So that's what I've really found through the process as well, that I can encourage other people to step forward and go, oh, okay, yeah, I do want to share my experience. Um, and that's a healing, that's healing in itself to be able mm-hmm. to do that, mm-hmm. speak about it and not be stuck in this fear of what next, you know, what now? largely due to or solely due to the way our healthcare system works Mm -hmm. and similarly I kind of feel I don't know how they missed this cancer and I also don't know why he wasn't put on palliative care sooner Mm -hmm. like oh I think a lot of his discomfort was being framed as oh Hank you're not getting up you're not moving enough you're not doing enough to make yourself feel better Mm -hmm. which in part was true but he was also in a lot of pain because he had advanced cancer that they didn't figure mm. out. So his last year could have been more comfortable too. Even though his death was deeply sad, I experienced more grief during those five years of caring for him after the stroke and more yes. stress and just more despair. 
and which I'm sure you've heard maybe from others too, and maybe about yourself. It's just because we've already lost a lot of this person when they have an event like that. So you're grieving that part, but then working so hard to figure out all the logistical stuff, navigating all the many curveballs that come with having in-home help. And yeah, that his death was a lot easier in many respects. I don't think that it's like any particular strength that I have, but I I think it's just, it's just a different experience. And I think everyone Mm -hmm. has their Mm -hmm. own version of that. Right. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's kind of like you have no, yeah, like overwhelm for sure, but then you have no choice but to carry on. And I think Mm -hmm. I'm also, um, going back to like the meditation and, and Mm -hmm. like getting in touch with the spirituality of it. Like, I think, trying to I've, I've tried to learn to see it as like I'm grateful for like just having gratitude mm-hmm. for having those experiences because I think mm-hmm. they've helped me be able to like kind of be there for other people through their own griefs and their own losses and mm-hmm. in, in a way that maybe I wouldn't feel prepared to and so mm-hmm. trying to use it as a strength I guess there's this strength I can't explain it. it's just called like a very sad strength um sad peace I don't know and you just it's one of those things you don't know what it's going to feel like until it happens no matter what book you read what they explain to you what pamphlet <laughs> they give you unless you've had this experience before and then on the same time everybody's different Mm-hmm. Some people don't want to feel or they're glad or their relationship, you know, mm-hmm. is different. And I just really like took it in. I just, I did start to think about when you, so when I left the hospital, you get in your car and you see that the world's just going mm-hmm. on. Nobody knows. They don't know what's just happened to you. No, and I'm thinking all this time I've been driving around and running errands. And I'm I'm talking about years, not just recently. And how many of us are feeling so broken of things that have just happened and we don't talk about it and we don't take it into account. It means a lot um, being able to talk about it again because Mm -hmm. because it happened so long ago because I was so young I think honestly this is probably the first time I've talked about this in such detail and and had to try building a timeline of what happened or you know just remembering things and Mm. I'm also really grateful for Mm-hmm. you listening and and asking no one ever asks is another thing and I guess having the opportunity to remember and to share the story is mm. I guess something I didn't know I wanted to do having those tangible reminders of a timeline and that we all exist within a limited one uh, really for me is, is the energizing, like fact of my life. Like, and mm-hmm. I, it, it's why I want to be in close proximity to deaths that I might 
appreciate my own life more. And, Mm -hmm. and I really do think that if you allow yourself that space to really meditate on your own mortality, to really um, allow it to be a part of your life in a way that it doesn't have to be morbid. It just has to be like a confrontation on some level. Um, I think the, the product of that can be really meaningful. And, and for me, like it creates that vibrancy of life that, um, that I want to spend my, my nine to five doing, I Mm -hmm. I want to engage with that because I think it's, it's what can propel you to live more like intentionally. I just want to say one more thing, which is that I am not an expert. I'm not here to tell people how to grieve or heal or what death is or isn't. My main goal with this project is simply to create space for us to share our stories about death and dying. And from that collective experience, enable all of us to feel less alone in facing the challenges of grief and loss. Thank you for listening, for being brave and vulnerable and for your time. Any questions or comments, please get in touch with me. I'd love to hear from you and perhaps share your story too.